Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the writers of interesting works and see if we can learn a little more about their background. Joining us today is Sean O'Dwyer, who is an associate professor from Kyushu University, and the book we're going to be talking about is his work, Confucianism's Prospects, A Reassessment. Hello, Sean. Hello, and thank you for the introduction. Um, how are you doing today? Uh, pretty good, um, as as well as as anyone else, I guess, um, at, this, at the moment. Yes. To uh, to reiterate, we are um, having these interviews during a time of quarantine and lockdown. So, uh, if there are any production and uh, sound quality issues, I do apologise for that. But again, we've managed to track down an absolutely cracking guest for uh, our interview this week. So, the book we're going to be talking about is Confucianism's Prospects: A Reassessment. And to begin with, I'd like to focus on the reassessment part. What motivated you to come back to this work? <clears throat> well, my interest in, in this kind of topic sort of started up about well, just over 20 years ago, I suppose. Um, and at the time, I kind of went in for what I now regard as a rather naive notion that East Asian societies have a sort of deep and enduring uh, Confucian heritage culture, which strongly influences their sort of social uh, and cultural life, and that this this sort of factors into what kind of political system is or systems are appropriate for their for their way of life, and so there are various proposals being around about what kind of political system is compatible with you know so called Confucian heritage cultures, and I was sort of a part of this d discussion or debate about twenty years ago and published a few papers about it. Um, but in the intervening years, I've sort of come to reassess that and think, well, you know, look, you know, East Asia is a really highly diverse region of, you know, over one point, about 1.7 billion people living in very, very different societies. Um, some of them highly autocratic, of course, and, and some of them are, are state of the art liberal democracies, which, you know, in the current pandemic are, are producing some really high quality statecraft responses to the pandemic and um it just seems to me that this notion of a, a sort of shared confusion heritage culture still having effect today and how people sort of live their lives and how they you know do politics it just seems to be not not a very good idea not a very workable idea a bit of a a pie in the, in the sky idea i suppose so my book is a kind of response to my own thinking 20 years ago and also to the kinds of you know sort of political and moral philosophical works which are being produced with that assumption in mind that there is this deep enduring confusion heritage culture which still has influence or if it has stopped stopped having influence because of modernization and industrialization that it it should somehow be restored uh, and i take issue with both of those assumptions would you say that uh, the assumption that there's a shared confusion heritage is quite a naive uh, maybe surface level take on political and social history in Asia? It's certainly there. I mean, most emphatically, the heritage is there. It's, it's, mm. it's in the literature. It's, it's in, the, in the political history of these societies. It's in the institutions, which they used to have. Um, the emphasis is on used to because there was an institutional collapse of, of the very sort of political and educational institutions which supported kind of Confucian culture, if you like, a Confucian culture of learning and self-cultivation, um, namely the imperial examination system or, or Keiju, uh, which sustained the Confucian learning in China for, you know, at least a millennia. 
Uh, and that fell apart in the early 20th century with educational reforms and with the decision that the the old imperial bureaucracy was was going to be set aside in China. Something similar happened in, in imperial um, Korea as well. So certainly, yes, the heritage is there, but whether it has much effect on people's ways of lives now, I think, is a very different question. And that's the question which concerns me. Right. The uh, chapter that you wanted to focus on was chapter five, The Unity of Loyalty and Filial Piety, an East Asian horror show. And yes. <laughs> it, goes, uh, it goes over the work in Japan specifically. Why did you choose this chapter to discuss? Partly because it, it does relate to how Confucianism was, and to some extent still is understood in Japan. Japan was a bit of an outlier amongst the sort of Confucian heritage culture societies um, because it didn't really develop a political system in which Confucian learning was so very central to people who wanted to, you know, serve, to become public servants, I guess, and serve the, the, uh, the rulers. Um, but it still had some kind of influence and, and to some extent uh, in modernized Japan, quite an interesting influence uh, in the early 20th century. Um, interesting and, and perhaps a bit scary as well. So, I wanted to bring that up partly because of that Japan connection and partly because the way in which Confucianism has been utilized by modernizing states in the 20th century to sort of prop up their legitimacy, um, there are some precedents for that in Japan. And there is a question of whether China will today, under the Communist Party, will try and reinvent that heritage and as it were, try and provide a new legitimacy for itself now that communism has kind of sort of, you know, done its part. It's, it's no longer sort of relevant to most people's lives in China. So the Communist Party is searching around for new sources of legitimacy, and one of them is a kind of revamped Confucianism. So when I'm saying that Confucian heritage is not so influential nowadays, there is a possibility that, you know, there are people out there trying to revive it, and some might want to try and put it at the service of the uh, very, very autocratic state. Well, the background to it, um, you talk about how in Confucian heritage, there was somewhat of a contested connection between filial piety, your uh, connection to your father and your family, and also your loyalty and your connection to the state. Could you give us some of that background to that discussion? Yes, well, certainly in the warring states here of, you know, 2,400 years ago, there was a lot of argument about this. And so um, some, the, the Confucians sort of say, well, you are loyal to your parents, uh, especially to your father, and also you express filial piety for your parents. That sort of can be transferred into a kind of reverence for the ruler, and there are sort of different ways of sort of phrasing that, but that was highly contested. So some other warring states think of such as the legalists say, well, this is nonsense, that a kind of private devotion to your parents is, is utterly in conflict with loyalty to the ruler. You can be a traitor, as, as it were. You can refuse to serve the ruler and go to war because you'd rather, you know, stay at home and look after your parents. Uh, so at that time, it was highly contested. So... You have um, these efforts down the years, or down the centuries, actually, of Confucians trying try to find or find various means to explain how you, know, you can have both. You can have it both ways. You can be filial to your parents, and you can transfer some of that filiality to devotion to your ruler. 
but they weren't exactly analogous. Is is that correct? Yeah, I, I mean, in in some way, well, that's precisely what some critics would have were saying that they're not analogous. That uh, that filial devotion to your, to parents is a private virtue. This is what the legalists were saying, and that it's just got nothing to do with being loyal to the ruler. And so the Confucians were saying, no, 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 we, we can show you how this is this is possible. So yeah, the, the, at least from from the Han Dynasty onwards, Confucianism became a kind of a state doctrine. Um, so that debate was settled to some extent, but there there was still some discussion about you know how exactly to to make the two uh, harmonious with each other. And also, you you bring up the uh, discussion by Mencius of uh, people, for example, uh, Emperor Shun, who also had issues with members of his family that he couldn't deal with his dad yeah, with his dad that he couldn't deal with in the same way that he dealt with other people under his rule yeah so in the mentions that there there's a uh, scene where one of the students highlights a, uh, a passage in the in the uh sort of legends about king shown where he he is partial to one of his uh one of his brothers and his brother is a really horrible person, but he ends up giving him a, a kind of a sinecure in a faraway province. Mm. And um, Manchester students says, what, "What's with this? This is kind of partiality." He's, you know, this his son's his um, the King Shun's brother is a bastard. So what's he doing? Um, rewarding him and sending him off to a province where he, he's going to inflict his, you know, his tyranny on the people there, possibly. Whereas the Shun actually harshly punished. Some other ministers who had no family relation to him, so not exactly a filial relation, but a, a kind of familial relation, which which some critics of Confucianism, you know, at the time, were saying introduces bias into rulership. To give some example of his brother's bastardry, you quote Mencius as saying that his brother devoted himself every day to plots to take his brother's life. I yes. can only imagine that that would be quite tiring. Yeah, there's a there's a rather it almost becomes a black humor. There's a scene where the, the the brother and the father conspire to set fire to Shun when he's when he's in a barn. Um, so it, it it does um it does sort of build up. You think you know isn't it time to run away or, or leave? But no, he he shows his devotion to his father and quietly accepts and tolerates the the plots by his family against him. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why he's rewarded with the sort of the, the rulership in the end. And you, you state that basically what this ends up demonstrating is that officials and other rank-holding individuals might see such behavior as an, as an example for them to engage in partial conduct and giving rewards even for criminal family members, and that this is a, a, a good example of uh, how the, the, the tension between the devotion to one's family and the devotion to one's state has difficulty being reconciled. Yes, um, that that was a that that was, and you know, sort of later on was again a point for critics of Confucianism. Uh, so long as it became a, a kind of state doctrine, which it periodic, periodically was, you know, the Han Dynasty and mm, to some extent, well, during the Song Dynasty and especially the Ming and Qing Dynasties, um, this was kind of resolved because you you know you, you you get into a bit of trouble if you really you know if you're an exa for example a candidate in the examinations you wrote and you wrote for your examination an essay saying well look you know these two can't be reconciled I'm taking the legalist position saying they can't well no you one you would probably not get a get a pass for examination you couldn't be, become an official and two the uh, imperial court might take a very strong interest in your unorthodox um, point of view so for for as long as it was a state doctrine um this kind of dispute could be sort of put on hold to some extent so this conception of 
filial piety and uh, devotion to one's ruler became basically a, a parallel conception of society. And as I was reading the chapter, I looked at it as being somewhat different from what was developing in European states. It wasn't a very top-down, Hobbesian, Leviathan kind of ruler, but it was more of a parallel with the family and the state. Yes, I mean, suddenly you do get a familialism in um, sort of 17th, well, perhaps earlier actually, but suddenly in the 17th century in England, you have a real debate about how, what kind of metaphor you use for society. And of course, you have the organic metaphors uh, of the uh, the kingdom as a body, the king of the head. That's the sort of dates through the medieval times. Um, but also, yeah, the patriarchal notion of the the state with the, the ruler as a kind of father, paternal figure, um, by analogy to the role of the father in the family. Um, that was something that, that caught up uh, John Locke in the 17th century with, in a huge debate with someone called Filmer. Um, so you, you do have these kind of familiarist uh, metaphors being used in in 17th, you know, up to 17th century uh, England. Uh, and then they're kind of quashed, I guess, so the, a new kind of civic notion of of political identity, which repudiates that familiarist uh, metaphor. But yeah, in, in the East, in, in Confucian tradition, it is quite an important metaphor. And yes, it's quite literal in a way uh, that you do see this transference in uh, filial devotion to the father being assumed quite seamlessly to be uh, applicable in the subject's uh, relationship to the, the ruler. But it, it is conceived in a much more benevolent terms, uh, certainly in the Chinese Confucian tradition. The ruler has to earn it. Uh, the, the ruler has to cultivate himself. He has to, uh, as a way, as it were, cultivate the kingly way uh, and be deserving of such reverence. Uh, and at least in the Chinese tradition, he can get into some trouble if he doesn't do that, if he becomes a tyrant. What were the ways that Confucian societies could deal with tyrannical rulers? Well, yeah, there's a big division between theory and practice. Um, certainly in the Mencius and in the Legi or the Book of Rites, um, it's hinted, sometimes it's more than hinted, well, there's a thing called the mandate of heaven for a ruler as tyrannical. Um, then, yeah, the fact that he falls uh, is overthrown is a sign that he didn't deserve to be there in the first place. So that gives a bit of a, a bit of wriggle room for ministers to sort of to sort of hint to the ruler. Well, you know, if you do really bad stuff, you could end up being treated like a criminal. You know, getting the chop, which is what Mencius actually says in one of the dialogues. He doesn't actually say that ministers have a right to overthrow uh, a ruler, but he does say, well, you know, um, it's going to it could happen to you. You know, so that's the theory that in uh, that ministers could overthrow rulers who are tyrannical, and that's the, the the ruler being overthrown was a sign that heaven had withdrawn its consent to the ruler being there, which in a way is a pretty radical doctrine for the time. But in practice, of course, in dynastic China, once Confucianism became the the kind of you know the state doctrine or the state sort of ritual order as well, that kind of thinking was very much held in check uh, for obvious reasons. But there were from time to time informal sort of practices and institutions whereby ministers could remonstrate, lecture, uh, even scold the ruler, and, and they could get away with it. It was just assumed that that was part of their job, but it was a, it was a pretty dangerous thing to do. Uh, you could get your head lopped off. So there's a quite a famous story from the 
uh, reign of the Hongwu Emperor in the um, this in the early Ming Dynasty. He was he was actually the ruler who founded the Ming Dynasty, and he murdered quite a lot of ministers and quite a lot of scholars. Finally, one Confucian scholar had had enough, so he he decided he'd go and visit the emperor and, and really scold him, and he took the trouble to bring his coffin with him to the remonstrance session. So, you know, you can imagine him sort of we- having his coffin wheeled in by some attendants while he sat in front of the emperor and told him, I'm going to tell you off. And wow. the emperor was apparently so impressed with his bravery that he let him live. Well, um, I'll, I'll try that next time. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> Bring your coffin. So the, the reason for you bringing uh, up the point of filial piety and devotion to the ruler is because it played a large part in the building up of the Japanese pro-national movement in the late 19th and uh, early 20th century. And it has a, quite a long history in Japanese Confucian thought. So this is the interesting thing, which I don't really go into so much detail in my book. I only really start with the early uh, 19th century. But from the 17th century, I mean, the Japanese were grappling with a lot of issues, and one of them was, you know, how do we differentiate ourselves from this huge sort of, you know, kingdom right next to us, which is, you know, pretty threatening. Um, but we also happen to be inheriting a lot of technology and, you know, ideas from, including ideas about statecraft, like Confucianism. So, I mean, from down the centuries, the Japanese have always dealt with this kind of inferiority complex about China uh, in different ways. But in the 17th century, they well, they started to have another look at Confucianism again with some new sort of well, not so new, but at least from the Japanese point of view, some very new Confucian doctrines coming into Japan. Uh, and one way they did did that was to say, well, the Chinese insist that they are the Middle Kingdom, uh, but we actually have a right to say that we are the center of the sort of you know the, the moral universe set up by Confucianism, and we have reasons to say that we are and the Chinese are not. And one of them is that. Well, you know, the Chinese talk about filial piety and, and loyalty, but look at what happens to the dynasties. They keep falling. They keep being overthrown. So it's a sign you know, that, they, that they can't maintain the system continuously. Whereas we, we, and this is where they sort of smuggle in these sort of fables or myths, which we now sort of you know, describe, I guess, as Shintoist. We have had this 10,000-year unbroken imperial line going all the way back to the great-great-great-grandmother, um, the sun goddess, Ama Terasu, and it's unbroken. Uh, we've never had dynasties fall. So in our case, we can say we have a perfect filial piety and loyalty system. Uh, where the filial piety and loyalty for the father and the family and the parents is seamlessly transferred to the ruler and has never been interrupted, never broken. No one has ever rebelled and overthrown emperors, or we've never had foreign invaders come in and, and trash the whole system, so we had to start again. So you have this kind of rather clever and, of course, very mythologized uh, method for saying, well, you know, we're actually doing this better than the Chinese are. We're doing our, our, our system of rule, our system of statecraft better, and it's divinely sanctioned. This leads to rationalized Confucianism under the, could we say, tutelage of Inoue Tetsujiro. Yes. So he drew on that tradition. Um, you know, going back three to three hundred years. Um, so, yeah, so at the sort of critical point of the late nineteenth century, the Japanese had to sort of think, well, actually, no, it's not so much China, which is you know causing us a lot of threat now. Now it's Europe and and the great powers, the European great powers, who are threatening us. But we also have to import a lot of ideas and technology from them. So in a way, there there was a a sort of change in focus. And and yet, of course, people like Inoue 
believed that Japan could draw on its own traditions in a way modulate, modify what was coming in from Europe and make sure that their central institutions, including the imperial institution, were, were not overthrown or badly damaged by it. So you have Inoue and other figures who are very, very fascinating because they were steeped in Confucian learning. He was he received tutoring in Confucian learning as a, as a young boy and a, uh, from traditional t- tutors. And he also started learning European thought um, from his late teen years so when he went when he went to um, well as one of the first students of the University of Tokyo. So these people synthesized what they were learning through European political uh, and moral philosophy with what they had sort of assimilated in their early years um, when Confucian learning was actually still quite prominent in the education of, of traditional Confucian learning, I should say, in the education of, of young you know, upper-class people like himself. In the process of doing that, they rationalized it. They academicized Confucianism uh, and were the first in East Asia to do so. In the work to try to Japanize Confucianism and, as you say, rationalize it in this way, they had to borrow philosophies from hyper-nationalist and kind of militarist philosophers in Europe. Yes, and I think partly that's through a process of identification that, in particular, they would look to Germany, uh, or to Prussia, at least at the time, the late 19th century, and they could see how a small power that had been humiliated in Europe, I'm talking about, sorry, in Europe, how a relatively small power that had initially been humiliated and then had built up a strong state system and a strong military was able to unify and was able to, you know, to stand up to the other European powers, such as France. So, in a way, Germany formed a kind of model, uh, one of a couple of models, of course, because the Japanese, the early Japanese thinkers in the late, sorry, modern thinkers in the late 19th century were also drawn to French and British um, constitutionalism. But Germany was certainly a very attractive model uh, because it had modernized and, and also militarized quickly. In the, in the 19th century, and it reversed its initial position of humiliation and also, I guess, disaggregation in the early 19th century uh, when it was defeated by Napoleon. Uh, sorry, I'm saying Prussia was defeated by Napoleon. And you see this actually carried over to China as well in the, in the early 20th century. It's an obsession with what happened to Germany and Europe and how it redeemed itself. And Inoue himself, he studied in Germany from 1884 to 1890, and he studied Kant and Hegel, especially, in in German universities. Yeah, there was a lot of Kant in the work that you were laying out for the rescript of Confucianism in Japan, and also that this then became a document that was repeated to the people and became part of their education. I guess more post-Kantian themes, people were sort of taking up the idea, this sort of going into Fee here, Johann Fee here, the idea of a people embodying a unique way of living freedom. So for Kant, that this is something that the the will, sorry, the the, the um, so again, the practical reason gives the individual. But in Fihe, this is transferred to the people itself that they embody a particular freedom that is unique in the world, um, and that other societies are less capable of doing that. So yeah, you do have a certain transference in the Japanese case of a belief in national uniqueness uh, and of the ability of the people to live a unique moral life 
in obedience to the state or in service to the state. Um, yes, th there are some some parallels, I guess, between the German case and the sort of 19th century and the way in which a particular status political philosophy is being worked out and how that's sort of interpreted in the Japanese case in the late 19th to 20th centuries. Well, it was very important that there be a nation state to support the loyalty of the people. Because if there's nothing for them to put their yeah. loyalty in, then why would it's anyone, yeah, why would anyone work for them? Why would anyone, in the end, give their life for them? Yes, I mean there there was a reaction against utilitarianism. I mean, utilitarianism and, and English philosophical doctrines are coming in. People are sort of looking at this thing. This just just uh, um, licenses selfishness uh, and egoism. Um, whereas uh, I guess uh, some of the German thinking that was coming was more like, well, yeah, we can we can see ourselves as a being able to live a much higher freedom when it's lived in service to the state. Well, the I do believe that the earlier name of utilitarianism as it became was actually ethical egoism, was the original yeah. title of utilitarianism yeah. be before Bentham took it on into the doctrine of utilitarianism. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly you, you see someone like you know, really, really um, getting stuck into the utilitarianism in, in the Japanese context, saying, look, you know, these guys' ideas become prevalent in Japan. It's going to be the ruin of our national policy, of our, of our kokutai. How important was it in the build-up towards the conflicts of the early 20th and uh, mid-20th century? How important was the melding of Confucianism and the state to that motivation? Eighty years ago, in April, so in 1935, there's a conference a great Confucian Way conference held at the Yushima Seido, Yushima Hall in Tokyo, which is like the sort of a, a traditional Confucian or Edo period Confucian sort of shrine. And it was badly damaged in the 1923 earthquake and rebuilt. And a group of Japanese Confucian scholars, including Inoue Tesujiro and Hattori Unokichi, who was a Sinologist and Confucian scholar, they arranged to have a big conference, this Confucian Way conference held there. And I think this is really the high point for Japanese Confucianism because you, these Inoue and, and um, Hattori Unokichi were very well connected with the Japanese elite. So at the opening ceremonies for this conference, you had the education minister uh, a member of the royal family who was a high-ranking officer in the Imperial Navy, Japanese Imperial Navy, presiding over the ceremonies, the newly installed emperor of Manchuria, which is then a, a Japanese puppet state, uh, and formerly the emperor of the Qing Dynasty, the last emperor, Puyi, also invited to preside over the ceremonies. And members of the Kung lineage and Yan lineages, these are the ancient Confucian families, also invited uh, to attend. So this shows in a way that there was some quite strong influence at work, but also that the scholars were being co-opted because at the time Japan wanted to provide legitimacy for what it was doing in China and, and the way in which it had set itself up in Manchuria. And they wanted to provide a kind of Confucianized aura to what was really a power grab against China. So yeah, in a way you can see this, in a way in, on the one side that these Confucius scholars were influential, but on the other side that the Japanese state was very interested in co-opting their ideas to legitimate what it was then doing in China 
And in the proceedings of this conference, you see this tension really at work. So um, you have these scholars saying, well, you know, we, the Japanese, we have this unique Confucian way. It's the, it's the imperial way, and that makes Japan the sort of center of Confucian thinking and learning in uh, East Asia. And we're going to assume moral leadership on that basis, and we're going to adopt this position of tutelage, in a way, over China and show it how it can restore it, because, you know, the Chinese have, have gone kind of bonkers and adopted re- republicanism, uh, and these republican doctrines are completely un-Chinese and completely incompatible with their national essence or their national polity. So we Japanese Confucians are going to show them how to how to get it right. So, yeah, in a way it was influential, but it was also co-opted, and it was co-opted in a situation where it was also very contested because of some ultra-nationalists, of course, in Japan were saying, this Confucianism is actually Chinese, and we're Japanese, and we don't want anything to do with it. So there was there were some really intense ideological struggles underway at the time, and yeah, the Japanese Confucians did find themselves under attack from much more vehement nativist uh, ultra-nationalists. So yeah, it's, it's quite a complicated story, but I think it would be fair to say that there were efforts to co-opt what they were doing and what they were saying for the national interests of Japan and projecting its power in East Asia, and that the Confucian scholars, in spite of you know reservations they might have had or what, um, that they were often co-opted. But as you put in here, and the quote is solidifying the nation's foundations by cultivating filial piety, fraternal respect, faithfulness, and sincerity, and cultivating a cooperative love of country in readiness for unexpected emergencies. It's almost like they could see what was coming. Yeah, uh, and at, that, at the time that was formulated, it was a highly defensive doctrine, because Japan was feeling very threatened um, by the great powers. So, of course, uh, Inoue, when he wrote that, he, he, um, he I think he, he made a point earlier in the, um, in the commentary on the rescript where he says, you know, that, we're a small nation and the Europeans are threatening to over- overwhelm us and to take our, our freedom from us or our, our sovereignty from us like a thief in the night. And so at that time, in the 1890s, it was formulated very defensively. But then you see it being flipped uh, mm. into the early 20th century as Japan acquires a more imperialist conception of its role in East Asia and even in the world. And yet it becomes more aggressive. You also go on to say, and one secular objective for Inoue in the outline was to articulate in the national morality what was unique about Japan's national spirit in distinction from that of other nations. How much of that survived the war? Yeah, it's a big question. Um, You do see some Confucian scholars retaining a certain kind of influence after the war. So Yasuoka Masahiro, who I referred to a little bit in the book, uh, he's also um, he's also been studied much more deeply by a scholar at Saitama University, um, Roger Brown. He continued to play a kind of behind the roles, uh, behind the scenes role, advising uh, Jiminto politicians, uh, some ruling party politicians, and continued writing. And to some extent was influential. And he was also an advisor, a spiritual advisor to um, sorry, Mishima, to, to the author, to the novelist Mishima, prior to his suicide. So, yeah, on the one hand, you do have these continuing influences. But on the other hand, in the universities, Confucianism is just not so central anymore. It really loses its aura. It ceases to be studied in philosophy departments, which you know really go full on for Euro-American philosophy. 
uh, and to some extent becomes uh, something that's studied by education or history of thought specialists. Um, so one scholar of Japanese Confucianism, um, the Australian scholar Kiri Paramore, he actually talks about a, a taboo on Confucianism in the post-war era. Um, others suggest that it's not that extreme, but there's just a, a losing of interest because it's delegitimized. It, um, the Confucian scholars like Inoue were too close to the militarist and hyper-nationalist state by the 1930s. And a lot of people remembered that and just said, well, we don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. We're not going to study it. It's just too, you know, connected with what went before. Well, given that the writers like Inoue co-opted Confucianism and tried to make it Japanese, and in doing so tied it towards the national identity, absent Confucianism, mm. does this unique national identity idea still remain today? You see it picked up in certain very conservative right-wing thinkers. Um, they'll still invoke the notion of Japan as a, a land of, of gods, and they will still refer to the, you know, the sacredness of the imperial line. But yeah, there's not much Confucian language left anymore. It is much more a self-consciously, a kind of anachronizing, fabricated Shintoist identity, if they do refer to it as Shintoist, of course. But yeah, Confucianism is just not in the picture so much anymore. You tie this in the chapter towards even more recent trends in re-emergent nationalism and more right-wing politics. How concerned mm. are you with that state of political affairs in Japan and in Asia right now? In Japan, not very much. <laughs> I don't think there's much room for Confucian revival. And actually, what, I guess part of the book's perspective is to say, look, you know, as I, as I said at the beginning, um, yes, there's Confucian heritage. Um, but yeah, it just doesn't have so much influence anymore. And certainly that's the case in Japan. Uh, but in China's case, as I said, there are possibilities, and I think rather scary possibilities, um, that an increasingly ultra-nationalist Chinese Communist Party, which has kind of had its communist ideology hollowed out by deco decades of, of market reforms, um, but which is still keen to maintain its grip on power, is casting around for other, other legitimating ide ideologies and is helping itself from time to time to Confucian slogans. But how far this will go, I, I really don't know. On the other hand, you do see a sort of bottom-up, sort of folk revival of Confucianism happening here and there and Confucian Academy or new Confucian Academies and then revivals of, of Confucian temples uh, and ritual practices. But that's going on in a, a still, well, I'm going to say it was a pluralistic religious atmosphere. It's certainly not anymore, but... You're seeing a, a variety of folk religious revivals um, going on, which the Chinese state appears to be clamping down on in some cases. And to some extent, there is some bottom-up uh, activities going on, and it's possible that the Chinese, the Communist Party state, will try and co-opt and harness those too. But at the moment, it's it's not clear. I think it's a, it's a possibility, and frankly, I think it's a dangerous possibility. And my advice to Confucian scholars is that they must fight this as much as possible, because it would be the ruin of Confucianism's reputation as a moral and political philosophy if it is once again co-opted, even in diluted form, by an ultra-nationalist and potentially expansionist state.
have you received any criticisms, uh, positive or negative, of your work in the last year? Um, yeah, interestingly, um, a scholar based at De- Deakin University, Bao Gong Hu, he read the book and he's just about to bring out a review about it. He's um, quite an influential scholar in China in his work on deliberative democracy. And he gave a presentation, a symposium, in a, uh, and the name of the university has dropped out of my head just now, but he gave a presentation about my book and another book as examples of a new sort of globalizing perspectives on Confucianism. Uh, and he will be participating in a book panel on my book, which is just in the early stages of development, but which once confirmed will be held in September of this year. And that will be virtually, of course, on Zoom um, via a university in Hong Kong. So, yeah, there, there is some interest in the book, particularly in its, I guess, its more revisionist perspective on Confucian thought in East Asia. And having completed the work, where will you go now with your own research activities? What's the next step in your process? Well, the next step is an edited book collection on Confucianism in modern Japan. Uh, which I'm editing for the Japan Imprints document, uh, sorry, Japan Documents imprint. And yeah, I've sort of a third of the way through that. So, so far I've got contributions from Chinese, Korean, Japanese, uh, British, Romanian, uh, Indonesian, and Taiwanese scholars. And uh, that sort of spans the period we've been talking about uh, in this in this podcast from the late 19th century through to the 21st century. So, yeah, that, that's looking very interesting at the moment. So just in the quite early uh, process of peer review and contributions. So, yeah, that will be the next stage, I guess, looking at a, a kind of a history of ideas perspective on the development of modern academic uh, as well as politicized uh, Confucianism. In the, in the Japanese and also the, the regional context affected by Japan during the 20th century. That sounds absolutely fascinating. The one thing that I would say about you, Sean, is that you're probably my most uh, academic of colleagues. Your research production and your writing is voluminous. How do you keep your motivation up? One of the things that I like to ask people is how would you advise other people who want to advance their academic careers to gain motivation and to keep moving forward with their work? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to up the volume of production now that, um, you know, got a more secure footing in academic life. But for a long time, I was, as the Chinese would would call it, a wandering scholar, uh, a bit of an itinerant scholar. So um, for a good many years, I was actually out of the university system working in the uh, English language teaching sector, the, the Aikawa sector. Oh, no, as a real well. job. Uh, yes, exactly. And, and doing ALT jobs. But I'll, I'll mention this. About 20 years ago, I dropped out. Well, I completed my PhD and actually came to Japan and, and became a novel teacher. And in that year... I wrote and had published three academic papers, and I was out of the university system at that time. And it just came down to setting time aside and making sure I worked on stuff. And also, well, the fact that I was a humanities scholar meant that all I needed was a laptop, an internet connection, and some books. I think that also makes it a bit easier if you're in the humanities. Uh, you don't need that much. So I think part of it is 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 motivation. 
uh, and maintaining some kind of connection with networks of other scholars. So at that time, I was involved in a few online discussion lists, which allowed me to connect with scholars and share my ideas with them. So I think it's certainly doable. Um, For a number of years, I was out of academia, at least not only just teaching full t- uh, part-time sometimes, but I was still maintaining some some published output. So yeah, my advice is to people who are kind of struggling, perhaps, if they're not sort of tenured or if they're sort of halfway in and halfway out of the academic world, is to keep it up uh, and maintain some sort of connection by correspondence with scholars working in their field. One of the reasons for starting this podcast was to try and increase the amount of connection with people in different fields and people working and researching and publishing around the world. So I hope that this podcast will help get you and your work in touch with uh, more people. Yes, thank you very much. I think that's a good place to finish this. Thank you very much for your time, Sean. The book that we were talking about was the 2019 Confucianism's Prospects, A Reassessment. Thank you very much for your time today, Sean, and I wish you the best of luck in all your work. Okay, thank you very much. And so to you, Chris. If you'd like to contact the show, then you can do so at lostincitations at gmail.com. You can also like and rate and leave a comment at the places where you download your podcast from. We also have pages on Facebook and LinkedIn. But the most important way would be, if you do like the show, recommend it to a friend, a colleague, and see if they like the content that we're putting up online. Thank you very much.